Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and back with me, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello, Fraser. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the coronation of King Charles, the downfall of Bud Light, and George Osborne's mad and miserable plan to ban smoking. So the eyes of the world this weekend will be on the coronation of King Charles in London. Tom, for such a big occasion such as this, it does feel as if the mood is a little bit damp. There hasn't been that much excitement or anticipation. Um, That's the sense I'm getting, at least. I I think that's right. I mean, you know, we might be made to eat our words when suddenly you have a huge coronation Absolutely. that everyone's very happy about and so on. But it, do, it does feel going into it that it is very damp. I mean, if you look at the polls, for instance, the support and the popularity that both the monarchy and Charles himself enjoyed um, in the wake of the Queen's funeral and all of the national mourning and so on, it's kind of dipped back down to where it was previously. Mm. Um, I think there's a general sense um, that whilst the monarchy still commands significant support, it's around 63% of the public, I think, at this point, uh, it's it's support that is wide but not necessarily deep. Yeah. Uh, there is a dampness to it, and I think you see that expressed in this coronation. I think what monarchists are going to have to sort of reckon with, if they want to, is the fact that whilst many of them felt that they were kind of riding high, particularly in the wake of the Queen's death, because it kind of reasserted the institution, its yeah. traditions, its power, and so on, uh, that a lot of the monarchy's popularity in recent years rested on the popularity of the Queen herself. And now, with Charles, someone who's been a much more controversial figure, he's about, I think, the fourth or fifth most popular royal is, is it currently. You see yeah. why the dampness is there. So I don't think that monarchism is sort of riding high in any meaningful sense. And I think the dampness of this coronation shows that. On the other hand, the monarchy is blessed with very naff opponents. Um, and whilst I'm Republican, Spike's a Republican publication, um, we've for many years been pointing out just how naff that opposition is, which is probably something we should get into. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's if you're right to say that feel, it feels like the power of the monarchy is waning, but not because it's being battered by you know, a strong Republican democratic force. It's almost a little bit by default. You see, um, particularly among young people, are falling away um, from the monarchy quite quickly. But we know that's not a generation that has democratic ideals at its heart. You know, you think about their attitudes to something like Brexit, where they're very much opposed. You know, they don't see the value in this democratic project. Often a lot of polling says that young people don't um, are not on board with free speech as much as the older generation. So again, is it is it actually liberal and what we would call progressive values, progressive democratic values that are eating away at the monarchy? Or is it something else? Because one of the big attacks, uh, people may have seen the recent Panorama documentary on um, on the monarchy, and one of the reasons they seem to cite is um, to do with race. You know, there's this sense that the monarchy is a racist institution, a hangover from empire. Um, it seems slightly unjustified, you know, a lot of it to do with Meghan Markle, who, you know, a questionable figure, to say the least. <laughs> uh or whether it's the row with Lady Hussey and things like that. Um, people may remember the Queen's lady-in-waiting basically being unceremoniously dumped by the monarchy after she asked um, a black charity worker, where are you really from? 
these kinds of rows seem to have taken um, a much larger, um, or the, the, a lot of the criticism of, of, of the monarchy is done through this, through the spectre of empire, yeah. through the spectre of race, rather than through the spectre of democracy. No, no, I think that's right. It's kind of become caught in the crossfire of like the culture war, essentially. Mm. Um, and we've seen that in recent months, I think. It's also been interesting that the royal family themselves have been very defensive yeah. in the face of all of this. Obviously, you had the recent statements, as you've gestured to, of Charles giving the thumbs up to this investigation into the slave-owning past of the royal family. Mm. As James Hartfield said on Spike, there could be a very short investigation. This stuff is common knowledge, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, it shows the direction of travel, um, you've had William and Charles, I think, kind of make apologetic statements in relation mm. to colonial past and so on. The Lady Hussey thing, I thought, was fascinating because they did essentially throw her under the bus. Yeah. You know, a much more self-confident monarchy could have said, of course she's not racist. What are you talking about? Yeah. Everyone loves her. Even Harry and Meghan made a point of saying how much they <laughs> liked Lady Hussey, which says something. Um, and yet they were still very much on the defensive. Yeah. You know. But um, in a sense, even though it is coming under challenge or at least certain people who are opposed to the monarchy spy an opportunity at the moment i think the trouble that you have is that um the two wings of republicanism if you like such as they exist in society it's all these days um are both kind of as bad as each other and both quite negative and anti-democratic you yeah. kind of have the sort of republic set the sort of people who would be out there on the mall wearing one of those fetching yellow not my king yeah t-shirts um who have spent many years banging on about how much the monarchy costs the sort of argument that has never convinced anyone one yeah. way or the other i don't think too many too many parades too many parades uh, too such much a miserable ceremony. yeah no, no. They, they, they play into the caricature of our side of this argument yeah. which is you know we're like puritans who would happily ban christmas again sort of thing yeah um they don't help on that front um also these days, I hate to say it, but you know, scratch a Republican is a Republican. You tend to find a Remainer. Yeah. So these people don't really believe in the public very yeah. much. They have a tendency to sneer towards them. They don't really believe in democracy, generally speaking. Then you have this younger wing. There's this um, group which is reportedly sprung up called No More Royals. Um, mm. There was one member of it, uh, a non-binary individual, as it turns out, um, who was speaking to the press, talking about how with the radical, controversial, um, largely queer backed apparently yeah. campaign group led by students uh, who seem to less object to the British monarchy as they do object to Britain in general you know they kind of see it as a as a sort of racist construct and so on um, so both sides are kind of bad as each other I think the thing that they share is not really a particular belief in democracy um, they object to the monarchy on a range of aesthetic um, yeah. and kind of cultural grounds but that kind of belief in the the sovereignty of ordinary people that that's that's the power that MPs should wield in Parliament. It's on our behalf, not on the Crown's behalf. These arguments are sort of not really made, certainly amongst that younger cohort, as you say. And we should talk a little bit about King Charles and his beliefs. Um, particularly, one thing he's very known for is his obsession with environmentalism. So it's, it's interesting that there could even be protests this weekend mm -hmm. um, from environmental groups when you think, you know, he's your biggest champion, ironically enough. Um, he drives uh, an Aston Martin that's powered by cheese curds and old wine, uh, such as his commitment to the green cause. Smell that thing coming, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he used to talk about how he would speak to plants and they'd speak back to him. Um, a lot of people strangely are saying that, you know, he is this kind of progressive pioneer. You know, he saw climate change before we all did, when really it's just he's a bit batty I guess there's always been this kind of reactionary element to environmentalism this always has an association with the aristocracy people who feel themselves to be custodians of the land essentially um, and that is expressed in a kind of green sense here no I think that's right I think actually people who 
have become more irritated by Charles's sort of environmental statements and, you know, really getting stuck in, you know, basically kind of presiding over COP and so on. Yeah. Um, and people on the right or the kind of monarchist set are getting irritated with that because it's a sort of meddling in politics and so on. Uh, not only has he held these views for a very long time, but Charles is a very useful reminder of, as you say, the kind of history of environmental and ecological sort of activism and thought, which is entrenched in kind of aristocratic reactionary politics. Really. Yeah. And he's a, he's a kind of a throwback to that, essentially. The fact that he happens now to agree with Greta Thunberg <laughs> it does not make him a kind of uh, a wokester in any sort yeah, of meaningful yeah. sense, at least on that score. Um, Tim Black's writing the long read on Charles this week and really lifting the lid on the fact that people knew that Charles was strange. He's actually a lot stranger than I think a lot of people realise um, into a lot of these very kind of essentially anti-enlightenment, anti-modernity ideas. He's yeah. dabbled with capital T traditionalism, this kind of strange mystic ideology, uh, which is a fair few adherents on the kind of reactionary right, as well as now in in in, uh, in the palace. So he's a very strange individual. Um, what's interesting is that you, nevertheless, you still have people, particularly environmental groups, who were getting quite excited because they had a king on their side. But if anything, again, he's going to demonstrate to you what a top-down elitist, aristocratic ideology environmentalism is. Charles is a nice reminder of that, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, is it, is it fair to say for Charles, anything after the 1500s probably is where it all gone wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> it coincided with people of his um, bloodline having a much easier time of it as well. So yeah, maybe that's yeah, got something to do with it. But um, it, it's interesting as well, because of uh, the, just to go back to the young people point, because I think it's worth saying that if you look at particularly the Ashcroft polls, which came out recently, yeah. which looked at the 18 to 24 year old age group or it looks at all the age groups but it pointed out that the biggest chunk of that is don't know so more think that there shouldn't be a monarchy than think there should be but the biggest chunk is don't know it's also worth remembering that um you government pointed this out that 10 years ago it was something like 72 percent of that age group supported the monarchy so it's a very yeah. recent phenomenon i think and i think speaks to the fact that um whilst that generation in particular has been inculcated into certain values which tend to make them great up against the monarchy yeah um many of the stuff that we've already touched on it's it's there's still it's not as kind of firm as, as it would be seen to make out and it's also a very unprincipled naff again republicanism that just says oh there's this one age cohort that don't like it so yeah. give it a few years and we're golden that's a ridiculous way to approach well, we it had, we had the same argument you know similar kind of arguments put forward around brexit mm -hmm. you know just wait till the old people die off and then, <laughs> and, and then it'll all be fine but it, it is interesting um, thinking about that cohort because the monarchy has um, okay Charles is not fully woke or anything like that that would be that would be silly to say but the monarchy has tried to embrace um, elite identitarian values there's no question about that I mean Charles in his own way um, in his emphasis on multiculturalism he you know he sounds a bit like um, your local council when he talks about communities of communities he could be writing a, a, a leaflet for yeah a municipal board or something um, he wants to put all faiths, and he, and he uses the words diversity all the time, you know, to, to show his commitment to this kind of multiculturalist outlook. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the younger royals, like Harry and Meghan, and even to a certain extent, William. William gets off the hook a lot. Um, it, people seem to think he's sensible. He, he clearly isn't. So the monarchy has even tried... It's interesting that, you know, even when the monarchy has really actually tried to embrace those kind of values, the values we associate with young people, the values we associate with the cultural elites. Um, it's probably still not winning them over. No, and I think the other thing is that, um, and William is a good example of this, is the embrace of therapy culture, Yeah, essentially, um, because when Harry and William first kind of got involved in sort of political campaigning and so on, it was that Heads Together campaign, if anyone mm. remembers that, 
Prince William having this Zoom call with Lady Gaga talking about their various troubles and so on, um, and really playing into that idea that, they, that the royals needed to engage in a level of sort of soul bearing, uh, that this is how you bring people closer to the monarchy. And whilst I'm not really in the business of giving the royal family advice, I think the opposite is really true. I mean, this Walter Badgett's famous line about you don't want to let daylight in on the magic. Yeah. And I think that kind of tendency to want to bear all is, if anything, in the longer term, going to undercut that sense of mystique, that mm -hmm. sense of being above the fray, um, that the monarchy, even under the Queen, a modernizer in some many respects, would still maintain that kind of level of, of distance and pomp and ceremony. Yeah. And so on. And um, it just, not only anything else, it just sort of rubs people up the wrong way. In Harry and Meghan, you've got a whole other level of soul bearing, of course. You know, <laughs> throwing open the curtains with your penis out, essentially, <laughs> let alone letting the daylight in on, on the magic. So, um, but. 400 pages of Freudian nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they are, I think, in some ways, as you suggest, they've Harry and Meghan have become a useful foil to say there's these um, sensible younger royals yeah. over here and there's these lunatics over here. But I think it's a question of degree rather than kind, really, when you talk about them. So, I mean, we've talked about the crapness of the Republican movement as it stands. I mean, what would you say, Tom, is the, is the case for getting rid of the royals? The good case, the democratic case? Well, I think that's the thing. The, the royal family, the monarchy, is an outrage to democracy, to equality, to reason even. I mm. mean, I think the fact that, um, again, we've had such a popular and it's hardworking and seemed to be pretty on it monarch for so long in the form of Queen Elizabeth II, kind of forgetting the fact that um, just because um, Charles is her son, the idea that he's going to be as good, as qualified, yeah. <laughs> as liked, um, as able to cohere large groups of people is obviously ridiculous. It's a point that Thomas Paine always made, you're as likely to get an ass as a lion. And mm. I dare say we know which one Charles is going to turn out to be. Um, and you have to believe in the public. I mean, it, yeah. the, cl the clues in the name of republicanism. I think the problem is, is that so many people have, have forgotten all of that. And I think for the people who are, as we've suggested, sort of just waiting around playing the demographic game, hoping that the monarchy will just collapse under the weight of scandal or yeah. all of these woke young people coming through <laughs> and um, growing up and deciding to agitate and vote it out. I think you really also need to be careful what you wish for, because if something like the monarchy were to just sort of retreat, disappear, collapse and so on, you need to replace it with something. Yeah. What would it be? Technocracy, identity politics? Those are seemingly the only two games in town that you have these days. So it makes it all the more important that anyone who is interested in properly pushing and furthering and deepening democracy in this country to get rid of the royal family, to make sure that, as I say, that popular sovereignty is at the heart of power in this country. Uh, you need to actually reacquaint yourself with those arguments. I think the problem is all of these different NAF republics we've been talking about, they want a king of some sort, they just don't want this kind. Yeah. They want someone to rule it over us, whether it's a sort of identitarian or a technocrat. They just object to the monarchy on basically aesthetic grounds. So that, I think, is what... It's, all, it's about democracy, it's about the public, but those are the two things that Republicans these days tend not to like that much. So Bud Light, one of America's most popular beer brands, has taken an absolute hammering mm. in terms of sales. Uh, the impetus for this was a certain Dylan Mulvaney, friend of the show, trans TikTok influencer, um, was essentially given a kind of sponsorship deal, had all these personalised uh, Bud Light beer brands, uh, Bud Light beer cans made up with um, his face and all that stuff. And uh, the American drinker is not happy about this, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> now, I was surprised by this. So, so the Bud Light boycott, which got underway at the beginning of last month in response to this particular Dylan Mulvaney ad in particular, uh, and also 
really accelerated, I think, when this clip of their vice president for marketing, whose name escapes me at the moment, was there talking about how she was brought in to sort out the brand's fratty image and to make it more inclusive and so yeah. on. So I think it's very quickly became another kind of front in the battle against sort of woke capitalism, if you like. Well, People felt lectured by this. Particular. Definitely. That's, I mean, that's such a direct diss on the consumer. You know, you're too fratty. Let's get in a new group. <laughs> We, we can't stand you. Let's appeal to some other more enlightened, mm -hmm. you know, more culturally switched on people. It was it was so explicit. And that was one of the things that I think got a lot of people behind it. You started to see these kind of anecdotal reports of people went down to their, you know, local bars, whatever, whatever journalistic outlet they work at. And people aren't <laughs> buying as much Bud Light. But then it actually started to become quite real. So yeah. I think on last week... Um, on year-on-year -year sales, they were down 26%. Mm. And also the sales of, like, Miller Lite and Coors Light, the competitors have miraculously shot up as well. So it's very clear that it's had an impact. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of people said that it was just a kind of conservative tantrum that wasn't really going to go anywhere. Um, and whilst you don't want to turn it into the sort of Boston Tea Party, some American <laughs> right-wingers are trying to do at the moment, yeah. it's a very interesting and, I think, positive agitation against white capitalism yeah. and this insistence that politics has to colonise all areas of life, even when you're just trying to like watch sports and have a drink. Um, and also that it's constantly kind of directed at you to lecture you about your own lifestyle, your own values. Yeah. And people have just had enough of this. I'm not saying this is the start of some great revolution necessarily, but it is, <laughs> it's, the, it's another sign of that enduring irritation, agitation against all that kind of pieties, I guess, that are coming at them from all directions. Definitely. I think, I think one thing that's really important to make clear is that, you know, a lot of people who... Um, opposed to this boycott or whatever they will say this is transphobic mm. there's just there's a trans person marketing this um marketing bud light and that's why people are angry because they're bigots and they're hateful and they, they can't stand it but really you know dylan mulvaney represents so much more than that mm -hmm. this is not just a trans person this is someone who is documenting their life as a girl not even as a woman as a girl who their videos are so insulting to women i mean actually I'm, I'm surprised that maybe this says something about um who these companies are branded at but i'm surprised that the nike um advert or dylan mm -hmm. Mulvaney's little nike promo didn't do more damage mm -hmm. because you could see in that you know he was wearing these nike leggings kicking up his uh, heels doing a ridiculous parody of a woman that's i think that's the one that insulted a lot more um women certainly um but still yeah you know it, it's what this whole ideology represents rather than a single person. Also, Dylan Mulvaney is essentially America's preeminent trans activist. Yeah. I mean, that might sound ridiculous, but um, interviewing Joe Biden at the White House, demanding to know if he's fully on board with sterilising children, mm. um, essentially being at the centre of the culture war over gender ideology. Dylan Mulvaney is not just a trans person going about his business. I yeah. mean, this is someone who has become a very politicised figure. The fact that he's a slightly ridiculous figure is just testament to the slightly ridiculous ideology to which he is pinned, but that's not that's neither here nor there. Um, I think people in object to the Dylan Mulvaney um, Instagram ads in the same way that people objected to when Colin Kaepernick got that Nike endorsement. It wasn't as, as many people, yeah. but people didn't hate that because he's black. I mean, there's all sorts of black people who have Nike endorsements, of course. The reason it irritated yeah. people is because he was very associated with Black Lives Matter, which, as we all know, is not a straightforwardly anti-racist campaign. It's an identitarian the year zero, all sorts of different things which people yeah. really object to. So I think the attempt to just bat this away as, oh, they just hate this ad because Dylan Mulvaney is transgender are just trying to discredit it, basically. This is an irritation, as I say, not just with the politics that Dylan Mulvaney 
represents. But the intrusion of that in politics into everything, yeah. like you can't escape it yeah. wherever you go because it's so important that you're brought on board with the programme and that's what people are pissed off about. And, and it even extends beyond the branding. I mean, if you think about some of the battles that Disney is having with Ron DeSantis, um, the governor of Florida, you know, Disney was um, making threats around laws that have nothing to do with Disney, around, you know, this so-called don't say gay bill, which would have... All it would have done would have restricted teaching to trans issues and uh, around trans issues and you know sexuality education to kids just younger than eight, and yet Disney weighs in, thinks it's its job to you know tell the public, tell the elected governor what laws he should pass and shouldn't pass, and it, it's bizarre because you know nowadays you have so-called progressives lining up alongside big corporates, saying that big corporates should have the right to dictate politics and, um, you know, elected representatives should um, go hang, No, I think, I think that's a really important point because this these kind of woke capitalism skirmishes are not just about who's fronting whatever, as you say. Yeah. There is a... They feel compelled to take political positions nowadays. Now, people like to dismiss that as woke washing or yeah. they're just trying to make... They don't have to do this. Um, they go out of their way to do it. Um, but at the same time, it is very hypocritical. So I think one of the most risible woke big brands of recent years was Ben & Jerry's. You know, yeah. A few years ago, they had to go at Priti Patel over migration policy in a long Twitter thread. And yet again, you whenever you see one of these things, just hop on Google and type in <laughs> their name and controversy and you will yeah. see that these people are not white. In their case, they had actually been hauled over the coals for mistreating migrant workers, yeah. as it turned out. All of these things always take place. So there, there is, there's definitely an element of hypocrisy, of course, but at the same time, these companies are not only trying to re-educate the masses, as it were, but they do feel compelled to wield genuine political power on top and to inflict that on elected representatives. So, And why more people aren't irritated by that, I really yeah. don't know. So former Chancellor George Osborne has called for a complete ban on smoking. He was speaking to the Times Health Commission earlier this week. He said that we should ban all cigarettes, but also we should tax orange juice. It was another little tidbit. I mean, this kind of... <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to know where to begin I, with I, this, I, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> really hard to know where to begin with this. It's just so crazy. But in a sense, it's not that unusual as well. You know, we people have become so authoritarian when it comes to things like smoking or to unhealthy food that it's, you know... Yes, this is slightly more extreme than what is uh, being argued day to day, but and I was I was heartened by the backlash that happened. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, like many people, was surprised to find that I could dislike George Osborne even more than I currently <laughs> do. But that and that, so it did. What are you talking about? Was the kind of yeah. um, ridiculous backlash? Um, again, he, him wanting to kind of not only ban cigarettes, it's time to ban cigarettes. Of course, there's going to be a problem with the black market, but you get that when you make anything illegal. It's really ridiculous comments. Wanted to go back and kind of. You know, do the you know finish the business of his sugar tax, extending yeah. it to orange juice, which is a great scourge affecting our country. Of course, at this particular white people are obese. <laughs> too much orange juice. Too much orange juice. <laughs> um, but at the same time, as you say, it's a, it's it's not as crazy a suggestion in terms of public health circles than people would think. So, like New Zealand, one of Jacinda Ardern's final acts in politics was to pass this law, which would effectively phase out. Tobacco, yeah. Stop. So I believe it's anyone born on or after the first of January two thousand and nine will never be able to buy a cigarette. Um, there's also um, there was a report that the government commissioned last year, it was a Khan review into kind of smoking and all these different things, suggested, thankfully not implemented, but suggested that um, we should raise the smoking age by one year 
every year until no one can ever smoke again. <laughs> These ideas are very much kind of in the offing. There are many places, including New Zealand, as I say, who are wanting to kind of be these trailblazers in effectively tobacco prohibition. Yeah. This is really on the table now. So what as, as irritated as a lot of people might have been by George Osborne, this could easily be a kind of sign of where a lot of places are going at this point. And, and Labour's West Streeting has made similar comments, seemingly on the grounds that he just doesn't like smoking. That, yeah. it, that people who smoke... smell of it. Yeah, people who smoke smell and therefore it should be banned. Um, <laughs> no consideration as to, yeah, what this means for the black market, the amount, you know, the amount of additional crime this produces, the amount of violence and corruption, as, as everyone knows, you know, attends the drug war would suddenly uh, reach tobacco as well. Um, and we also have this plan uh, introduced by Theresa May to make England smoke free. Um, now, we don't necessarily know what is going to be implemented in order, to, in order to reach that, but it's this idea that um, less than 5% of people will be uh, smokers. Uh, there does seem to be sort of no limit to it. Everything is at least pointing towards prohibition anyway. Yeah. So as much as, you know, I, I agree with you, Tom, there's, I, George Osborne is one of my least favourite <laughs> politicians. But it, what he said is not even that out there. No, it's, it's really not. And I think it's um, a reminder of the fact that in this whole discussion, the point and the argument that people should be able to do what they like so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, you know, really yeah. basic liberal... John Stuart Mill sort of principles are completely absent. The the assumption is, well, if something's bad for people, they shouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and therefore, as you saw in these George Osborne comments, as you saw in the West Streeting comments, they're like, well, of course, it's a logical endpoint. The state has taken it upon itself to suggest that not only that it wants to kind of ward you away from cigarettes and alcohol, that it wants to ward you away from sugary foods, um, from all kinds of different things. And so it's the next logical step, which is why it's more important important than ever to get back to that kind of more principled argument yeah. which is to say that people should be free to make their own decisions to weigh up what it is that they value more in life that being healthy and living a few more years is not necessarily more important than a life of a bit more pleasure as some people mm. would see it this is a kind of anathema to the sort of debate that we've been having currently but it's important that we bring it back because otherwise you will just get this slow drift yeah. towards prohibition especially at a time which is really strange uh, where you know smoking rates are like 13% of the population yeah. this is this is not something which is which is plaguing us in any meaningful sense as a society and yet it's still there because of those old puritanical instincts i suppose yeah and i think it just it, it makes it really clear that it was the time to object to this stuff was at the time of the smoking ban you know people failed to defend smokers and now you know, they're going to come for your sugar, your alcohol, <laughs> your NOS. You know? <laughs> um, Out of your cold. I, I don't know how many of our off. viewers are, uh, yeah, are, into, are into their laughing gas. Mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> but again, but the, and often, the, you know, the health justifications such as they are are very weaselly. Yeah. You know, people, they give laughing gas to pregnant women, for God's sake. It's not really that dangerous. Or, you know, we're slightly... For some reason, our public health um, scientists in the UK are, are not as mad on the question of vaping. But if you look at what's happening in Australia or in, or in the US, you know, there are big crackdowns on vaping, even though it has been proven to help people quit smoking. Much healthier alternative. It's often a little bit like Wes Streeting and his opposition to the smell. It's almost an aesthetic thing. It's almost like a cultural aversion to some of these things rather than a genuinely kind of scientific health-based um, and it's a reminder that all this public health stuff is really about puritanism. Yeah. Really. Effectively, we talked a bit about this on Last Orders, our Nanny State podcast that we do with Chris Nome from the IEA. Um, but this is really what drives it. They say it's about your health. They say it's about for your own good and so on. It's because there has always been a layer of society who are quite miserable 
um, who um, prioritise health over almost anything else, want to impose their lifestyles on the lower orders and are effectively offended by people's yeah. <laughs> different choices. And I think the vaping thing, as you say, is a perfect example. It's, it's effectively the answer to that thought experiment of what if you could invent a cigarette which has none of the health problems. They pretty much did it, yeah. and yet they still want to get rid of it, which I think tells you where, we're, where they're coming from in all this. Definitely. So I've just finished doing the podcast with Tom. If this is the kind of thing you're into, or if you're into journalism generally, then I have an amazing opportunity to tell you about. Spiked is restarting its internship program. We're offering full-time six months paid placements. This is just an incredible opportunity to kickstart your career in journalism and to be a part of our team, essentially. So there's two internships on offer. First of all, there's the editorial internship where you'll be helping us to produce our articles, essays, features, and things like that. And also we're doing an audio visual internship. So if you're a dab hand of any of the microphones or cameras, some of the stuff you've seen laid out here, then that's the opportunity for you. We're really, really excited to potentially have you on board. To find out more, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That'll give you all the details on how you need to apply, about the deadline, things like that. It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Best of luck. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.